Today's scripture reading is from Acts 5, 12-32, 40-42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest read a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Great to be here with you all. As you can see, we're looking in the book of Acts at the power of Jesus. And if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you've seen that that power has actually begun to do some pretty amazing things in the earth, in the world, and in the city of Jerusalem. But here, really, in chapters 4 and 5, though, we begin to see that things begin to break badly. For these first disciples and first Christians, uh, you know, at first they, they began to enjoy, it says, the favor of all the people. They were sort of like this novelty, this curiosity there in the first century. But as the church began to grow, as it began to grow actually by leaps and bounds, 2,000 this day, 3,000 that day, that 
growth began to put the early church on a direct collision course with the rulers, with the cultural elite of that day. And this collision course and the choices that these first Christians make during that time along the way, they begin to do one thing. All that happens to them begins to clarify what it means, what it really looks like to be a Christian. It begins to clarify what it really means to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, no matter what. And uh, so let's ask that question today. What does it look like to be an authentic follower of Jesus based out of these early chapters of the book of Acts? It's actually a great, it's a right question to ask. Uh, The Apostle Paul over in Corinthians says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. So let's do the same thing in a way. Again, ask out of the first days of the church, what did it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Three things for us today. First, it means to live a new kind of life. Second, it means to face a new kind of problem. And third, it means to find a new kind of courage. There's a new life. A new problem and a new kind of courage. Let's begin here, number one, and look at this new kind of life. And uh, we saw last week there was this lame beggar who was healed in chapter three. And because he was healed, then in chapter four, the disciples are called in and they're brought to account for it. They're questioned as to how and why that can happen. But then they're let go, of course, after their question. But here in chapter five, they're not so lucky because they're still preaching about Jesus. And I'll channel Dr. Seuss here. The Jewish leaders did not like it. They did not like it one bit. And so here they have these disciples arrested this time, thrown into prison this time. But it says while they were in prison here during the, during a night, then angel of the Lord opened the doors and brought them out. So an angel helps them escape, and the angel says to them, go stand in the temple courts, he says, and tell the people all about what? This new life. The Greek word here, you may know, for life is the word zoe. It means an abundant life, a high quality, a high caliber, a full, fully orbed kind of life. So the angel is saying, tell the people about this abundant, Abundant life, this new kind of life you have in Jesus as Christians. Tell them what it means to have Jesus change your life. So let's ask, well, what were the marks of this new kind of life they had been living? Let me give you three. Three things these first Christians did well and what each mark proves about them and shows them about us. First, let's look at this. They, as we can see, they, first mark of the Christian, handled suffering well. Yay, exciting topic, suffering. Here in the early part of Acts, we see they're intimidated, they're arrested, they're beaten, right, for serving Jesus. And what is their reaction to the suffering? Wow, look at it. It says, they left the Sanhedrin after they were beaten, rejoicing. Wow. They had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, that's what they do. They handle this injustice, this beating incredibly well. Let's ask, what does it prove? Well, it proves, here it is, it proves they aren't serving God for what they think God ought to be doing for them. 
I'll say it again. It proves they aren't serving God for what they think God ought to be doing for them. And this is important because one of the most common, if not the most common, reasons I hear about people walking away from their faith is because they or someone they loved went through something difficult or traumatic or terrible. And if that's you and you're here this afternoon and you're, you're a person in this category and on the verge of doing that, let me ask you, do you know what you're actually doing? I'm going to say something. It's going to be pretty tough, but hang in there and I'll unpack it. If that's you, you are proving Satan right. Here's what I mean. Because if you know your Bible a bit, you know that's, that's the basic accusation Satan makes against humanity back in the book of Job. In the book of Job, Satan says, says God, you know, people really only serve you because you do good stuff for them. Job is really only serving you because his life's going well, but, you know, strike him, take away his money and family, uh, and he won't serve you. People, uh, you know, they only serve you because you're like this mm, cosmic friend with benefits, God, you know, someone they can get good stuff from, and when the good stuff stops, they'll ghost on you, right? Now, that's a pretty cynical view, but you got to admit, Satan's got a point here, because if you're saying... Why am I even serving God? Bad stuff happens to me. You've just shown you believe that God owes you a certain kind of life. Now, what did these disciples do when they're beaten, when they suffer? And we'll see repeatedly for the next decades of their life. They rejoice. They rejoice because they were in it for God, not themselves. It's tough. It's tough. But think about it. Think about if you, if you had all kind of money, if you had, you know, all kind of $100 bills, y'all, right? I mean, if you could make it rain for the people around you, but then your business failed or the trust fund vanished and then all your friends disappeared faster than a good movie on Netflix, right? How, how would that make you feel? make you feel like they didn't really love you for you, like they were only in it for the stuff, for the money, for the good things. See, suffering alone is never what turns someone's heart away from God. As a pastor, I see evidence for this all the time because I'll talk to one person walking away from God because of the difficult things that have happened to them, but then I'll talk to the next person coming to faith in God because of through the difficult things that have happened to them, and I'll talk to a third person, a Christian already growing deeper, more humble, sweeter, more mature because of the difficult things that have happened to them and they're thanking God for it. See, suffering alone never, never by itself turns a person's heart away from God. Handling suffering well, therefore, proves what's in there or not, that we're in it for God himself, not just what we think he ought to do for us. So that's the first mark. First mark of a Christian is someone who can handle suffering well. But the second mark here in the book of Acts is that we also handle the Bible well. Yes, handle the Bible well. And here's what it looks like to handle the Bible well in your life. There's this case study in Acts chapter 4, one chapter earlier. When these first Christians, and we see them beginning to be persecuted, we, beginning to, we begin to see them be afraid and begin to fear, and they know that they are on a collision course with death and difficulty and prison and hardship and they open up their Bibles and they turn to Psalm 2 and Psalm 2 says, you can look at it in Acts 4, it says, people, 
The nations are going to rage against God and against his Messiah. That's how it's going to go down. People are not going to like it. When Jesus comes to be their king, so they open up their Bible. They begin to read this. They begin to preach to themselves. And then they begin to pray out of what they preach. And when they pray, guess what words they use? They use the words sovereign Lord. Why would they do that? Oh, it's because when they read Psalm 2, again, they read that God and his Messiah are king over the whole world, which includes them as well. And therefore, if God is the God of them, if Jesus is their king too, that means their king has a good and perfect plan working through them in history. He's a sovereign Lord, right? And so what they need, they see, is boldness to continue, not something, an excuse to back off. What have they done? They've handled their Bibles well. They go to their Bible in a time of need. They open it up. They begin to preach to themselves out of it, begin to pray out of it. And then the world, Jerusalem begins to change around them and the world around you will change. When you begin to handle your Bible the same way, you say, why is that? Why will the world around me begin to change? Here's why. Well, look at what the disciples don't pray for here in the middle of their difficulty. When they're suffering, they don't say, God, would you, you know, let us escape from our difficulty. They don't say, God, would you stop the persecution? They don't even pray for the old Christian hedge of protection, right? If you've been to a charismatic prayer meeting, you know what I'm talking about, the hedge of protection. They don't even ask for any of that. No, here's their prayer. They say, chapter four, verse 29, enable your servants to what? Speak your word with boldness. Wow. Handling God's word well proves it is the foundation of your life, even your emotional life, not just your circumstances. So first mark, handle suffering well. Second, handle the Bible well. Third mark, and yes, I'm gonna go there, is to handle our money well. Handle our money well. And here's why. Because when you read through the book of Acts, you see that Luke talks over and over and over about how and why. These first Christians were generous toward God, toward one another, towards their faith community. And here's why this is such a big deal. It's a big deal because they were generous in a time and culture where generosity was not the norm. Most people were not generous. We think generosity is a thing today because early Christians changed the world. Most rulers in that day, when they gave money away, there were always strings attached. They gave money away in a kind of way that was called liberalitas. That's the pattern. And liberalitas looked like a ruler, looked like a king, looked like an official riding through a crowd on horseback in a chariot, flinging money, flinging coins printed with their own image on it, by the way, to buy the people's affections. And Jesus himself even told a parable about about this. It was so common. He said, listen, you know, people, they host parties, they give stuff away, they invite rich people, they give their money away. Why? To make a place and space for themselves, to get influence. But he says, in my kingdom, it must not be so. He says, when you give, give differently. And early Christians gave, not in a pattern called liberalitas, but in a pattern called caritas. Caritas, that's where we get our word charity. 
And caritas looks like giving in a way wherein I do not expect to be repaid. Caritas is giving with no strings attached. Caritas is looking not what I can get, but what I can give. And I wonder where these early disciples got an idea like that. Where do you think? Hmm, I don't know. See, the Greek and Roman kings, they gave looking to get power, but the Jesus, but Jesus, the Christian king, gave in an entirely different way. And so when you see these early Christians freely, liberally, sacrificially giving money away, what it's telling you is that the mark of an authentic Christian is to be able to give money in a way that shows they're free from their culture. You know that whole, that whole scary story? about Ananias and Sapphira right before this in chapter 5 right some of you are hoping I'd skip that part when we got to the book of Acts you're thinking maybe he'll just breeze through that well I'm just gonna tuck it in here for you today the whole story is about Ananias and Sapphira they were people who lied about how generous they were being to the church and they were struck dead for it yeah Now, Barnabas wanted to do, Pastor Barnabas wanted to do a five-part offering message over the next two months or whatever about that. I told him, no, just make it four weeks. Five is too many, but four. Now, listen, I joke, but listen, yes, that story shows how what they did negatively affected their community. Yes, it shows poor character, but most importantly, and here's the point, it showed that money was still their God while they claimed that Jesus was their God, and our God takes claims to kingship in our lives very seriously. And when we handle our money well, when we're able to give first, it just shows we're free from our culture. And listen, if you don't want to give here, don't give here. But literally, for the love of God, give somewhere. Because if you can't give it all, you may think, oh, I'm just being safe and cautious, right? Set my family up like Ananias and Sapphira were. But what you are actually doing is inviting, you're opening the door to forces of death and destruction in a way you can't foresee. Now you say, wow, that's kind of tough. Is that like a threat? You know, no, no. That's just an observation. It's just reality. Galatians 6 says, don't be deceived. God cannot, will not be mocked. What a person sows, they will reap. So that's the kind of new life the angel commanded the disciples to show off to the world. A community we see that handled suffering well, that handled their Bibles well, that handled their money well. How are we doing today? How are we doing? Can we do this? Can you imagine if we were this kind of community? We handled suffering well. We handled the Bible well. We handled money well. Do you think we might have something to say to the city here in Austin. I think we, I might. I think though we do. I think we do. So that's the first overall mark is a new kind of life. But number two here, let's move on to this. There's not just a new kind of life we have as Christians, but there's also this text is saying a new kind of problem. New kind of problem. And let me clue you into what your problem is today. And this problem isn't actually unique to them. It's a problem that's common. It's actually a part of being a Christian throughout time and history. Let's take a look at it. It says here in chapter 4, the apostles were brought in, excuse me, chapter 5, apostles were brought in, made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest who said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in what? 
this name, he said. Well, what's the problem with this name? Why is the high priest so upset about this name? Well, because back in chapter 4, Peter said this to him the first time. He said, listen, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So what's got the high priest so upset? He imprisons and then beats these first Christians. Here's what. He's upset because Peter is making an absolute truth claim. That's what Peter's doing. Peter's making a claim that there is a truth that is true for everyone, no matter what. He's saying there's no other name by which people can be saved except through Jesus' name. And when the people hear this, they go nuts. And it's not just the Jewish people here, right? No, as we go on to the book of Acts, it's actually the Roman people, the Roman culture who have an even harder time with it. And here's why the Romans hated that. The Romans hated it because their culture, like our culture today, was intentionally pluralistic. There were many gods, many goddesses to worship in first century Rome. And of course, back then you were welcome, right? To worship any god, any goddess you want, whoever you like, all such things as you like. But they said, don't say there's just one truth. Don't say there's just one God. But Christians came along and said, mm, nope, not going to do that. You know, Zeus, he's a fake. Mm, Hera, she's a phony. Hermes, mm, didn't exist. And the emperor's just a man, by the way. There's one true God. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which we were eyewitnesses of, by the way, proves that. And so what it means to be a Christian is to believe in absolute truth, as Peter is making clear here. To be a Christian means you believe there are some truths, not all truths, but some truths that are not only real, but binding, as Acts 4.12 says, upon all peoples and all cultures for all time. Now, that was a big problem then, and it's a big problem problem today, which is why no one's really excited about this point, right? And let me give you three reasons for this, why this is a problem for us today, each a little more challenging as we go. First problem, first reason people don't like Acts 4.12 is people say, well, you know what, Christians, uh, you know, the world's changed too much. Christianity fit with all its truth stuff in a simpler day and age. You know, a gentler time where there was black and white, but the world's complex now. There's like the internet and stuff now. And so, you know, things have changed and that way of thinking uh, of absolute truth doesn't fit into the world. Now, here's the obvious flaw with that statement. And first of all, it's just wrong. And here's why. Because Christianity did not actually begin in a simpler day and age, in a gentler time full of black and white morality. It actually began in a culturally and religiously pluralistic free-for-all time period where there were all kinds of gods and religions. Christianity isn't from a black and white era. It's actually from an era just like ours, philosophically speaking. And it looked every bit as dangerous. It came across every bit as radical and seemed as every bit offensive then as it does today. It was offensive because of its ideas about sexuality and the human body and our relationship to the state and our allegiance to one God. And Christians were hated and massacred for their views. 
See, Christianity's not actually from a different culture. It's from the same kind of culture. And therefore, of course, we don't need to be afraid as Christian people, do we? But second, people say, well, okay, you know, you got a point there. Maybe I was wrong about mm, Christianity being from another time period. But can we just, you know, drop the whole exclusive thing, second idea? You know, because all faiths are really just the same, right? People think all faiths are the same. Can you just not say, Christians, that Jesus is better or superior to Confucius, or Gandhi, or Buddha, or Muhammad, that is so arrogant to say. Now, when people say that, what they're saying, of course, is that all faiths are the same, and they're telling us, telling you as a Christian person, you can believe in Jesus, but just don't believe in what he said, which doesn't make sense, because think about the kind of things Jesus said. Jesus said stuff like, well, you know what? Um, I and God are one. Jesus says things like, I can forgive your sins against God. Jesus said things like, I've existed since the beginning of time. Jesus said, I am the meaning of existence itself. I'm the bread of life. Jesus said, all authority in the universe has been given to me. Wow. So when you say, you can believe in Jesus, just don't believe in the things he said. Like, what, what things are left to believe? You know, what things are left? He said it so often. See, to believe in anyone means to believe in the stuff they said. Otherwise, there's no point to believing them at all. Now, let's, say, let's substitute another person's name in for Jesus. Let's say it's your, your Uncle Donnie. Uncle Donnie, Uncle Donnie, no offense if you're an Uncle Donnie today. Uncle Donnie, I'm sure you're great. This is the other Uncle Donnie. Uncle Donnie, let's say your Uncle Donnie looked at you at Thanksgiving dinner with a straight face and says, the universe belongs to me. Let's say Uncle Donnie said, I and God are the same person. Let's say Uncle Donnie said, I am infinitely old. Before Abraham was, I existed. (laughs) Let's say Uncle Donnie said, I am the very meaning of your existence. I am the bread of life. What would you say? You'd say, Uncle Donnie, I think maybe you've been making one too many trips down to Aunt Carol's secret stash in the basement, if you know what I mean, right? I mean, you wouldn't believe it. You couldn't believe in Uncle Donnie. Why? Because to believe in him would be to believe in the stuff he said. And no one's going to, should believe in an obvious liar. So either Jesus is telling the truth and we should believe in the stuff he said or we should spend our time warning people about him like you'd warn people to stay away from uncle donnie at thanksgiving dinner right he to believe in him is to believe in what he said and no other religious founder said anything close to the kind of things jesus of nazareth said repeatedly Toyohiko Kagawa was an early 20th century Japanese Christian minister, social reformer, and he put it like this. He said, I am grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, for Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths, yet they could not meet me at the moment of my heart's deepest needs. I was a pilgrim journeying on a long road that had no turning. I was weary. I was footsore. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion, but since the beginning of time, who has ever said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the remission of sin? Do you hear what he's saying? Oh, he's saying, 
He's naming one of Jesus' claims. There's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. Why did he say it? Well, because Peter said it, because Jesus said it. Buddha and Muhammad never made claims like this. So maybe Jesus is right. Maybe he's wrong. But these fundamental exclusive truth claims are a part of who he is. So when someone says to you today, well, you can believe in Jesus, just don't claim it's better. Well, that's like saying to someone, you can have a meal, you just can't have any food. Or you can drive my car, but you're going to have to walk. Or you can wear that, except you can't. I mean, it's all nonsensical. And so is insisting you can follow Jesus apart, believe in him, apart from his exclusive truth claims. Third problem people have today with Acts 4.12. One more problem. They'll say this. They'll say, well, okay, maybe Christianity is from the same you know, kind of culture as ours philosophically. They'll say, yes, Jesus made exclusive truth claims. I get that. But here's the real problem I have. They'll say you can't really know anything for certain, right? You can't really know truth for certain. Now, if this, if this is you and you're here and this is your view, if you're saying to people, to Christians, Like Pilate said to Jesus, truth is unknowable. People should just keep it to themselves other than than, otherwise they're guilty of trying to convert people to their view of spirituality. I want you to think about what you're saying. You are saying, if that's the case, that Christians are wrong for their beliefs about spirituality. And Christians should should stop trying to get others to believe them. But everyone should believe you about what you say about truth and spirituality. See, what you're saying is really your view of spirituality is right and everyone else's is wrong. Yours is better than everyone else's. Now, that's unbelievably hypocritical to say. And what makes it worse, and I'm going to dig for a moment here, is that most moral and cultural relativists won't admit it. They don't have the guts to. At least Christians are admitting, will admit, should admit freely their exclusivity. But here's why it's actually worse than hypocrisy. That thought, you can't really know truth for certain, that's actually massively culturally imperialistic. Hang with me. That thought is a destroyer of cultures because when you say there's no such thing as truth, you're only saying that from and because of the safety of your Western bubble. Billions of people on the other side of the world today don't believe that for a half second. They believe absolutely in absolute truth. We only believe that because our culture was birthed out of for the most part, white European enlightenment views from secular thinkers like Kant and Rousseau and Hume and Descartes, to name drop four people there. And why should their views be right? Why should their views be right? See, when you say Christians and everyone else from all faiths should just drop their views because truth is unknowable, you just took white European enlightenment-based values which are, by the way, totally unprovable, and you took them like a machete, and you just chopped down every other culture. And you said, be like ours, or you're out. Think like us, or you have no place in the modern world. And by the way, if there's no such thing as truth, you've got a bigger problem. If all values are relative, 
Human rights don't exist. Why do people fight for human rights if there's no such thing as absolute truth? If truth isn't real, why bother fighting for justice? Why should we care about people who go hungry or are thirsty or who starve or die of disease? Why should we care about him? There's no such thing as truth. See, while there is a problem Christians face, there are actually more problems with the problem than just the problem itself. The mark of a Christian, therefore, is to base his or her life around the exclusive person and claims of Jesus. All right, I've been upstairs in your head for a while. I'm going to come back down now into your hearts, I hope, for this last and final point, and I'll set that up with a question. Let me ask you, how can we face today dealing with opposition to the preaching and worship of Jesus and, as well, any other kind of problem or fear that we face? Well, it's number three. It's by finding a new kind of courage, new kind of courage. All right, if you're here and you're saying, wow, man, it took a lot of courage for those people to live like they did back then, I would say, yes, you're right. Or if, on the other hand, you're saying, I don't really need courage to live like that. I'm fine how I am. You know, Morgan, I made it through my, you know, your checklist. Pretty good. I'm not facing the firing squad today. I'm good with the whole courage thing. I'd say you're wrong. And here's why. See, most of us think that courage is only something we've got to, you know, summons up, stir up, draw up when we're facing the firing squad or when like a commanding officer tells us to go take that hill or go rescue our buddies behind enemy lines. But if that's what you think courage is, you're missing the fundamental nature of courage in general. Courage is, hear me, courage is staring down your heart's greatest nightmare and not allowing your heart to fall. Say it again. Courage is staring down your heart's greatest nightmare and not allowing your heart to fall. Because there's a sense, yes, in which someone can be absolutely courageous when it comes to life and death situations. Oh, but when it comes to the everyday stuff of life, that same person can be an absolute coward. They can't admit they're wrong. They can't take responsibility for their actions. They can't overcome that temptation or say no to that vice. What about the courage it takes for all that and more? For many years, uh, my wife, Carrie, and I, we would have the same fight. And if you're married, you know some of you, oh, actually, probably no one else has ever had this happen to them. Here's our fight. Our, I mean, excuse me, our same um, situation. Uh, she would want to buy something, anything, and I would accuse her of being materialistic of having, you know, a spiritual issue, not being su- spiritually sophisticated enough <laughs> to grasp the severity of our financial situation. Now, this approach worked pretty well for the first few years of our marriage when we were broke. <laughs> and had next to nothing. And she'd say, I'd like to buy that. I'd say, you've got a problem with money. But a few years later, when our income began to go up, thankfully, now it wasn't so easy to bully my way out of that situation, a conversation. And one night, things came to a head in a really intense moment of marriage fellowship, where we were, you know, as a fellowship, but we were fellowshipping around the same fellowship issue we always fellowshiped about. And she finally looked at me and said, you're the one with the problem with money, but you just won't admit it. Why are you such a coward about it? Oh, yeah. Now, she was right. 
like she always is. Like you always are, yeah. In my own life, maybe like some of you, I had grown up just above, sometimes below the poverty line, the pain, the stress of that in our lives. It worked its way down into my life and my approach to money. And so when we got squeezed, guess what came out? Oh, what God put in. So where can we get courage to overcome whatever fear we may have? Look, look at where the disciples get their courage when they're told to stop living for Jesus. It's amazing. Look at this, verse 30. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors, catch this, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. By the way, in case you forgot, God exalted him to his own right hand as what? Prince and savior. Okay. So Peter here, he's saying, he's saying to all these people, he says, you, because you're a human being, you're not the driver of my behavior. You're not going to be the driver of my emotional life. I'm not going to be intimidated by what you tell me to do. I'm not going to be intimidated by what those people tell me to do by the class bullies or those people on TV or the movies or the whatever, whoever else says anything, I'm not going to be intimidated by you. But look at where he gets his courage from. Oh, there's a unique word here. There's a special title. Peter calls Jesus for the first time here. He calls him not just Lord, but Prince. Prince, this is a word only in the New Testament four times. Twice in Acts, twice in Hebrews. It's the Greek word archagos. Literally the arch ego, the supreme ego, the supreme person. What is this? Well, Greeks in that day, they cultivated character, not through catechism alone, but through the telling of heroic stories. And the heroes of their stories were the archegos. They were the archegos, what we would call the superheroes, the ultimate heroes. So Peter is taking a cultural phrase and saying, Jesus is all of that and more. Jesus is the archegos. He is the hero. He is the superhero. He is the ultimate superpower. He's saying he has defeated death. And he's saying he's been raised from the dead. And if he has defeated the ultimate villain, the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate enemy, then he's done what Zeus couldn't do, what Hercules couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do, what Buddha couldn't do, what Muhammad couldn't do, what the New York Times can't do, what CNN and Fox News can't do, what your professor can't do, what the cool kids at your school can't do, what the people on your, on your team or your work or your family can't do. And if Jesus has done that, why should we fear anyone? Peter says, give me one good reason I should be intimidated by you. Jesus is my prince. He's the captain of my courage, he's saying. How do you see what they're not doing here? Oh, Peter's not looking inside and saying, I've got what it takes. <laughs> he's not looking inside and saying, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. no. Nor, on the other hand, is he saying, I don't need anybody. I'm fine how I am. No, he's saying, I'm not enough, but Jesus is, and therefore I am. Jesus is courageous, and therefore so am I. Jesus is, was heroic, and therefore we can be too. And the early church was, without a doubt. The historical fact was and is. Christians lived bravely, and they died bravely, not because they were made of sterner stuff, not because they were better in and of themselves, but because 
they had found a better source of courage, one that the world had never seen before, and one the world, to a large extent, still knows nothing about today. See, can we, can we say this? Can you say this to yourself today? I've got the prince of life on the inside of me. I've got the captain of courage of the heavenly host alive on the inside of me today. Can you say it doesn't matter what they say? It doesn't even matter what I say. It only matters what my prince says. See, See to be a Christian means you have a new kind of life. You can face a new kind of problem because you found a new kind of courage.